All right, welcome or welcome back to another episode of the Investigating Pathways podcast. Today I'm joined by Avital Garg, who is a two-time founder, having founded Prep Me and School, I believe, both of which had successful exits. Avital now manages Electric Capital. Avital, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, dude. Absolutely. So real quick, I want to start off with sort of your origin story. And I'm curious, what was sort of your childhood and education like up until the point you went to college? And were there any sort of interesting experiences that you think have shaped you since then? Oh, interesting question. Um, yeah, I mean, my, I, I, was, um, I was born in India and then moved to the U.S. when I was, uh, when I was five or so. Um, so I, I mostly grew up in, in the U.S., um, kind of all over the Midwest, um, and a lot of the places where I grew up, there weren't really very many Indian people, um, until I got to maybe high school, um, where there was a, there was a pocket of people in, uh, Cincinnati. Um, and so a lot of my childhood was sort of spent as being the outsider and we moved around a lot. So sort of constantly making new friends. And so I think, um, probably the, the biggest thing from childhood was probably these like set of skills that come from having to, um, get your head around how to be the new kid, how to read a room, how to be an outsider and feel comfortable with it, um, which turns out is, is a really useful skill if you want to be an entrepreneur because you probably are not going to have very many friends and you're going to look like an idiot for a while. And you have to be very comfortable being an outsider and kind of doing your own thing, even if people think you're weird or different. Um, so it turned out to be really good training for being an outsider, I think, which you know I think a lot of entrepreneurs feel like they're outsiders. Gotcha. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so I'm curious, um, Moving on from there, sort of what was your high school, like as you grew older, what was your sort of high school and college experience? Like you mentioned that you sort of found more, I guess, Indian people in high school. I'm curious, did that um, affect your, the way your high school experience was as opposed to, I think, elementary and middle? Uh, what was your college experience like? Was there anything significant there, et cetera, et cetera? Um, you know, in high school, it was, it was mostly just about school. Um, you know, frankly, I was, I was super into a bunch of extracurriculars and I was extremely, extremely busy. So I was, um, I used to be really good at math, <laughs> so not anymore. Uh, and, uh, you know, I did. Were you one of like the math elite type people who was like yeah. doing all the math competitions and stuff? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I used to be pretty good. Um, and, uh, same thing with like science competitions and, and academic, all sorts of academic competitions. And, um, frankly, I was, I was a pretty distracted with all the extracurriculars. So just, it was like a lot more fun. I think it's, in retrospect, I'm, I'm a pretty competitive person. And so like the competition of it was really fun. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I did, I actually did okay in school. I actually didn't do that great. I was like top 10% of my class, but I wasn't, you know, like valedictorian or anything. And um, I went to a really great public school. Um, and uh, I was very fortunate that a bunch of the people that were in the public school um, were just smart people. And so I was surrounded by a bunch of really smart, um, uh, smart peers. And, uh, unfortunately we had teachers that really cared a lot and we had parents, um, in the, in the community that cared a lot. So it was a, it was a pretty well-run school and they, they really took care of everybody, which was, um, which was excellent. And, um, the reason I mentioned all of that is I think it was, it was actually a, a really great tee up, uh, going to Stanford because when I got to Stanford, it wasn't any more competitive than my high school. In fact, mm -hmm. you know, the, the smart people at my high school were, just as smart, if not smarter than the people at Stanford. So it was actually a pretty easy transition for me from that respect. Yeah. Um, where I think a lot of people go to uh, a really great university and they realize that they were, you know, sort of big fish in a small, small pond situation in high mm -hmm. school. And then they go to college and all of a sudden they're, um, you know, surrounded by people who are just as talented as they are. And it's sort of, it's a little bit of a culture shock. Unfortunately, I didn't have that. Um, and so it actually freed up a lot of space for me to, to be able to do other things. 
Um, and so I ended up starting a company. Um, I was able to be a lot more social than I was in high school. Um, I was able to figure out a lot of like who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do and just sort of explore a little bit more. And so, um, you know, I'd always been into programming and I, I started programming when I was, gosh, maybe like 10. Um, oh, wow. And, uh, and so I was going to, I was definitely going to major in computer science and I got to do that. But then I also got to explore a bunch. I got to take writing classes and religious studies classes and a bunch of philosophy classes. And it's just like fun to explore a bunch of stuff. And I had, I had like bandwidth to do that, which was pretty awesome. Um, so I, I was, in retrospect, I, I did my, um, I did my undergrad master's in four years. Um, and in retrospect, I probably should just hung out. Yep. Like you did both. So just, oh, wow. Yeah, and so I probably should have just hung out for another year or two <laughs> and taken more classes and taken more like philosophy classes and just sort of chilled out. But um, it was great. I, I really enjoyed my time in Stanford. I, it's probably one of my favorite times of my life. Um, it's just, a, it's a really special time where you get to like be intellectually curious and learn and you're surrounded by all these smart people, but it's kind of the era before you have any real responsibilities. Um you, know, you don't really have kids, you don't have a mortgage, you don't have parents who are older, like all these things where like life eventually mm -hmm. catches up with you. Um, so yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a great time. I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity to, to go there. It's funny too, because, because I wasn't, I was like very, um, I had like fantastic test scores. I had all these like national math and science things that I'd won um, or been in, you know, consistently very good at. And so um, that looked really strong, but my grades were sort of meh. And mm -hmm. um and so I actually didn't get into most colleges and universities that I applied to, uh, but I'm, I'm grateful I got into Stanford. And I think there, it, it, was a, it was a very good culture fit. It's a very entrepreneurial place. And I think somewhere, perhaps in my essays or something, they, they sort of recognized that little entrepreneurial streak um, and sort of sort of bet on me. I'm, I'm grateful that they did. Gotcha. Yeah, that's super cool. So I know you mentioned that while you were at college, you started building a company. And I know... Um, as soon as you graduated, one of the first things you did was sort of continue working and founding PrepMe, right? And so I'm curious, what got you to take the risk of building your own company, right? I'm sure like a large majority of the people you were surrounded with at Stanford probably to some degree went to like, I don't know, some like big firm of the time or like whatever it was, right? And I'm curious why you decided to take the plunge and be an entrepreneur. Yeah, well, for me, it's, it's um, I don't know if it's trite or what it is, but it, it was not really something I thought about. I actually. Um, I'd started um, kind of being entrepreneurial when I was about 10. Um, I, got, um, I got a graphing calculator and I learned how to program it. And at the time I, I would take, um, uh, I was taking classes at the high school. And so I would, I would, um, I just would read ahead a chapter in like the algebra textbooks and then program whatever the next week's stuff was and then sell it to everybody in my classes in like the two periods of algebra. And so <laughs> um, I was just like making money, but I was like 10 years old. And so uh, I would just come home with like wads full of money because I could, I wasn't mobile. I couldn't like drive a car and go somewhere and spend the money. So I just had like all this cash. And uh, I've, I've told this story before in some some places, but like literally I just had drawers full of bills. And so then one day my mom found them and was like, "What the hell? <laughs> like, are you like <laughs> are you like selling drugs? Are you like beating up little kids and taking their money? Like, what's going on?" <laughs> and I was like, "No, no, no. Like, let me show you." And I showed her that I'd like learned how to program my calculator and was like selling apps basically. Um, and so it was, it was not really a surprise um, that I kind of ended up going down that path. I'd sort of always just been tinkering and building and, um, and, uh, and trying to figure it out. And I think part of it was also just like, you know, cause I'd grown up so much of my life and I like being in these places where I, I kind of didn't really have that many friends cause I was always the outsider. And so that was a way for me to be like occupied and kind of do my own thing. Um, and, and so, 
you know, it just sort of was always what I was doing. So it wasn't, I, you know, by the time I was in college and starting a company or later when I started another company and sold it or, you know, starting electric instead of joining a VC firm, I think it's just sort of how, how I'm wired a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't, I don't love being inside an organization, especially if the organization is sort of, um, like if, if it feels like the organization has won, that's like not really where I thrive. Like, as you know, I think, uh, I really thrive when it's, it's serious sort of like your back is up against the wall and it's like hard and it's unclear if it's going to yeah. work. And you know, like that, those sorts of environments I think are, are where I really operate my best, um, uh-huh. where I'm frankly just like the most comfortable. Um, and so it's, I think it's just natural for me to have started things and sort of continue to, to sort of sit on the outside rather than, you know, sitting inside an established large organization with a big brand is just like not where I operate well. Gotcha. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And so for prep me, um, I'm curious, right? It was an online, I believe, like learning engine is how I think uh, you've described it. And so I'm curious, where did the idea for that come from? Like, was it one of those things where you like personally experienced it? Did you like hear secondhand accounts of like problems that inspired you to create it? Where did that sort of come from? Yeah, the, the origin story was, um, you know, I, I had done really well um, on on the SATs and the ACTs and um, uh, was... Uh, you know, kind of surprised at the, and, and, and I was getting kind of inbounded by people to like tutor, tutor them for these tests. And I was just surprised at how terrible the materials were. Um, Cause I, I didn't really prepare for it. And, and so I was just, you know, when I, when I looked at some of these materials, I was like, wow, I could literally write better materials than this. Mm-hmm. And so a friend of mine were having this conversation and my friend and I said, I think we could literally write better content than this. Um, and so this was like the, um, the early two thousands. And so um putting that together with sort of, you know, our computer science background, we said, you know, not only could you write way better content, but it would actually be pretty straightforward to make this online and digital. And then you could learn at your own pace and you could uh, learn what the student knows and what they don't know and actually customize the content for them and customize their path through the content and so on. Um, and so that was, that was a V1 of, of, uh, of prep me. Um, and uh, it worked well. It, uh, you know, it was actually pretty rudimentary heuristics actually resulted in pretty, substantial outcomes you know it's just like something as simple as well if you just don't keep showing somebody something that they already know and you like mm-hmm. figured out that they know it just don't show it to them and let them skip over it really basic heur- heuristics like that like a handful of heuristics got you pretty far in terms of actually making it so that people were more engaged and and learned more um instead of you know everybody reading the same book and sitting in front of a teacher and everybody has to you know you zone out if you already know what you're doing or like you know maybe if you don't understand a section you kind of want to spend more time on it like really basic insights which today i think you know like 15 15 plus years ago, that was, um, that was like novel thinking. Like, how, how would you do that? How would computers do that? I mean, this is like pre iPhone, right? So yeah. Um, pre iPad. Right. And so these are like pretty novel concepts at the time. Um, and so, uh, we, we were one of the first, if not the first, like purely online test prep business in the early two thousands. Um, it had a pretty successful business. I mean, we were doing, you know, single digit millions in revenue just as like a side business. Um, and, uh, and, and learned a bunch. It was a great, it was a great, um, you know, testing ground too. Like, you know, I had to, I was in literally, I would, you know, like I, I was at Stanford, right. So I, I would borrow a friend's car or like rent a car and then like drive somewhere to go negotiate like a partnership deal. Um, cause I was like 18 or 19 and then like drive back to the dorm and like, you know, do my problem sets. Right. So it was actually great, great practice. So like by the time I got my first job, I was at Google, you know, in, in a weird way, I kind of already had like three years of work experience. Um, going mm-hmm. in right because I've just been doing my own thing for three years um, so yeah it was, it was fun it was a blast gotcha 
So um, you sort of touched on this, but I, I, uh, I'm curious if you have any further thoughts on it. And it's sort of what was your vision for the company when you first started, right? I'm assuming you didn't like sit down and be like, hey, this is our problem statement. This is what our mission statement, like all that, all that sort of, uh, all, all that like very formalized sort of stuff. And so I'm curious, what were you hoping to achieve when you first started? Was it just something built for your friends? Were you hoping to like generalize it and make it sort of one of the more mainstream test sources? And sort of how did that vision change as you started seeing more progress? Yeah, we were we were not that disciplined about it. I mean, I think we had a we had a very clear vision, which was that the world was very clearly going to be you know driven by personalization, and not everybody should be learning the same way. And that actually, it's a much better model to sit in front of a computer and move at your own pace than to have a teacher just lecturing at you and you're bored and you're like doing problem sets at the same pace. It's just that that's clearly not the right model in our opinion. It was very clear to us even. Mm-hmm. 15 or 20 years ago, that it was going to be a very, very different mode of education at one at the end of the day. Um, So the the vision was very clear Um, in terms of like the details of it. You know, we were, we were very, very young and very noobish. And so we didn't even, you know, there were no OKRs. There were very, you know, lightweight on goals. We just sort of were hacking and building and running as hard as we could to try to figure things out and piecing it together. So we made a lot of mistakes along the way. Um, It was was pretty raw. Um, And so a lot of it was just sort of like brute force, you know, it's just like we cared Uh and we wanted to build a cool product and, and, we listened to our customers and we, we did all the customer support and, you know, we did all the PR. So just, you know, by having to do everything, we were really close to the metal. Like we were close to the code, we were close to the product, we were close to the customers. Um, so it was a really awesome learning experience, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't very well thought out. Uh, you know, uh, and eventually we wrote like a business plan after we'd already built the product and, and we tried to be more butt up about it. But even that, you know, there were a lot of assumptions baked in and there's just so many things we didn't know, um, that, uh, you know, a lot of it was sort of fly by the seat of your pants. It was a lot of it was just sort of like day over day. What do you need to do and get done? It was, it was, you know, so the vision was clear. And then like, there's a big strategic gap. There's a big communications gap. There was a good like planning gap. And then it was just like, okay, we, we know a bunch of stuff that we need to do. So we'll just do it as fast as we can. It's kind of how we operated, which is how a lot of, I think, first-time entrepreneurs tend to operate is like, you kind of know where the world will be in 10 or 20 years and you just run as fast as you can roughly in that direction. Um, and if you get a little bit lucky, you hit product market fit. Gotcha. Yeah. So speaking of product, product market fit, I'm curious, is there like a specific point in time where you're like, you know, this isn't necessarily just a side hustle. Maybe it's like something that we could work on full time after we graduate. Was there sort of that moment for you or was it just one of those things where you're like, we'll run with it until we can't anymore? Yeah, it was the, the moment I, I, I think was um, we, we ended up winning actually um, a business plan competition at the University of Chicago. My co-founder, went from undergrad to business school at UChicago. And uh, we applied for the business plan competition, ended up winning. And then I think we were also, I th- I th- I'm trying to remember what it was, if it was like business week or something. But anyway, there, there used to be these like, it's kind of like the Forbes 30 under 30, but back then it like wasn't a thousand people under 30 and they hadn't like scaled it all out. And so I think business week used to do like a 25 under 25 or something. I don't remember what it was, but anyway, we got onto one of those lists and we won, you know, like this business plan competition and we were yeah. on like the cover of Forbes small business. And we were all of a sudden we were like, Whoa, this thing is, we're doing like several hundred thousand in revenue as a side hustle. Uh, and I can't remember if we crossed a million at the time or not, but you know, we were like pretty substantial revenue as a side business. And we're on the cover of these magazines. And meanwhile, like my co-founders in business school and I had a full-time job. So we're like, okay, maybe this thing is actually working. Um, and, you know, what, what would it be? Because I was already at Google at the time. Um, and, uh, and so we were kind of like, wow, you know, if this is working like this and it's sort of a side thing, like, I wonder how big it could be if we actually just focused on it full-time. And so kind of, I think winning those business plan competitions and 
getting press coverage as much as it shouldn't matter. I think for, for first time entrepreneurs, it was a lot of external validation that maybe, maybe we were onto something. And, uh, and that gave us a lot more confidence that maybe, maybe the thing might work. Um, and I think it'll make it a little bit easier for us to take that leap of faith. Gotcha. Uh, super cool. Yeah. So, um, and I sort of want to move towards the end of your time at PrepMe. And so I'm curious, um, I think there, it was acquired, right? By a company PrepMe Plus. was. Yeah. And so I'm curious, what got you to sort of, I know, cause you very quickly got back into entrepreneurship with Spool. What can you walk me through that whole process of the acquisition, your thoughts throughout that, how you were feeling, obviously one company, one acquisition, huge success rate already. Right. So what was sort of your thoughts around that whole experience? Yeah, it is it, interesting. I mean, from the outside, it, it's like, oh, it's, that's great. It was an acquisition, you know, you chuck up a win and so on. Um, you know, in the moment is obviously quite messy and, and feels very different. Um, and what actually happened at the end of that business yeah. was it, it wasn't growing as quickly as I had hoped. Um, and we'd raise some money, but then also um, it was right around the 2008, 2009 crash. So like the 2009 crash happened in the stock market. And like the consequence was because we were an education product, um, uh, you know, a bunch of, um, uh, uh, a bunch of the funding dried up because tax revenue was going to dry up. Right. So like the, the consequence of like, the stock market crashing and asset prices and real estate prices all crashing was that tax revenue fell off a cliff, which meant that schools had less funding, which meant that they couldn't buy our product as much. So we actually had a huge business problem as a consequence of this. And so then coming out of that, going in 2010, um, you know, that sort of the conversation my co-founder and I had, um, and he's still a very close friend of mine. You know, we basically said, look, if it doesn't hit a certain trajectory by a certain date, then we kind of have to say this isn't working. And, and I think it's an important thing to do as a founder is to actually put like dates in the sand and lines in the sand and say these metrics or this sort of growth rate or this kind of revenue or this sort of milestone by the state. Because as, as an entrepreneur, you have a tendency to want to you know, think that you're right at the cusp of the thing working. It's like right around the corner. And it's like a yeah. month away or two months away. And then you just keep doing that over and over and over. And then you kind of pop your head up and it's two years later and you burn two years of your life when really two years ago, you should have just cut it and gone on do, to do something else for two years. And you would have made a lot more progress just by starting over. Um, and so I kind of realized that, you know, along that, uh, along that journey. And so I, I my co-founder and I had a conversation We're like, okay, by this date, we need to hit this kind of a, a revenue threshold and these kinds of customers need to close. And if they don't, then we're just going to sort of call it and say that this is a good business and it'll grow like, you know, 20 or 30% a year, but it's not going to be like a breakout, you know, billion dollar company kind of situation. And so we put that date down and, and we sort of drove towards it as hard as we could. And, and we didn't hit the milestones. We didn't hit that threshold. And so we said, okay, we need to switch gears here. Like this thing is not going to be a huge exit. We need to sort of figure out how to land this in the right way. And we have created a lot of asset value. And so where can we, yeah. where can we put, put it where it'll create a lot of asset value and, and continue, you know, like the product that we've built will continue to be used and students will find value in it and teachers and so on. And so that's what teed up the acquisition. Um, and so kind of psychologically, um, you know, and then the process of like finding an acquirer and, and getting all that set up. And so it's a ton of work. And I give my co-founder Karin a lot of credit for that. He, um, he really drove that and it, it was a ton of work. Um, and I think, um, you know, in that process, because we'd already sort of psychologically committed to selling the company, you know, like six or 12 months earlier, and then the process took six or 12 months. It was by the time the process was done, we'd already sort of like psychologically, you know, dealt with it. Whereas I think a lot of the times what happens is, and this is what happened with, with Spool, like you get to the finish line and you sell it and then you need like six to 12 months to internalize that, that it's a different situation mm -hmm. now. You've like sold, sold the company and disconnect from it and think about what you want to do and 
and recharge a little bit, but we'd already sort of had six to 12 months to do that. It's not to say that we're yeah. like sleeping a lot or, or not stressed or, or like physically recharged, but sort of psychologically we had separation from the idea that this thing was not working, um, which is kind of, I think is an important milestone for a founder. And so yeah. by the time we sold the company, I was kind of ready to start something again. And so um, just kind of jump back into it with, with my good friend, Curtis. Um, this is just like circa 2010. Um, and then Curtis and I have worked together ever since he's, he's one of my good friends from college and we ended up starting spool together and selling it to Facebook and then, um, working very closely at Facebook together for many years. And then, um, co-invested on a bunch of things together as angel investors and obviously started electric, uh, electric capital together back in 2018. So yeah, Curtis and I have now worked together for 12 years, I guess. Gotcha. And so I want to quickly touch on spool, right? And so similar to sort of what I was talking about before, what was, your inspiration for building school? Where did the vision come from this time around? Yeah, it was interesting. One of the big lessons that we learned from Curtis also had a prior startup and I had my first startup. And one of the biggest lessons we learned is that you really have to pick the right market. And uh, if you don't pick the right market, everything else will sort of not matter. Um, whereas if you do pick the right market, it's all tailwind. And so, you know, in 2010, the market bet that we took was that we should bet on mobile and specifically that Android was going to be a thing. And so, um, you know, as soon as um, we sort of realized that Android was going to be a thing and that was, that was the bet to take, um, then we started thinking about what you could build inside the Android ecosystem that would really make sense and what were the problems at the time. And at the time, there were a number of problems around multimedia. And so people were trying to get Flash to work on mobile devices and, um, and moving media between phones was really, really painful and between your desktop and your phone was really painful. And so we built a bunch of tooling and infrastructure to just make it really easy to move media around. But I think the, the takeaway or the observation is like, whereas my first startup was a really sort of bottoms up experience of like, I have a problem, I, I think it can solve the problem. The second startup, which was financially far more successful, actually, um, even though it made far less revenue, um, uh, was a much more top down market centric approach, which I think is a very common learning pattern for, for entrepreneurs is like pick the right market and then, mm -hmm. and then sort of poke around in the market to see what's changed in the world. And once you figure out what's changed, then you can think of what product you can you can slot in there to to meet those needs, um, and so that's kind of how we thought about the, the second one. And then as a result of doing that and being strategic about it, we were able to tee up acquisition offers from multiple companies. Even though the the, the business wasn't working, the product uh, and the technology were were very much needed by a number of large technology companies, um, and so we had multiple acquisition offers from a bunch of companies who have gone on to they were already public companies at the time or have already gone on to IPO. And so we were, we were sort of financially much in a much stronger position as a result of that because we sort of picked the right market. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was actually interesting. Like we, we didn't start from what user do we want to solve for? We actually started from the market and worked backwards for, for, uh, for school. Gotcha. And so I'm curious, were there any um, along the relatively short life cycle of the company, right? It was two, two, three years, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. So were there any major obstacles or hurdles that you faced that forced you to make any significant pivots, difficult decisions? Um, and if there were, were there any sort of major learning lessons from them that you think were valuable? Oh yeah, there are tons. I mean, like every startup you could write a book about, uh, it's just, you know, mm -hmm. who, who would care? So tons, you know, hiring <laughs> was hard, like, you know, hiring continues to be hard. How do you recruit really, really great people? Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, on the market stuff, I think we did a good job of picking the right market, but you know, how do we pivoted 10 degrees in either direction, maybe, maybe we should have ended up competing with Dropbox, or maybe we should have actually been, you know, doing more like a notion or an air table and sort of realize that trend. Um, you know, I think there were mistakes we made around building for both Android and iOS at the same time. 
Um, you know, I think there were mistakes in how we fundraised. Um, you know, we could have been much more strategic about raising more capital at the right times. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I think there were, there were a lot of mistakes around, around that. Um, that's okay. As you know, I think there's, there's um, one way to think about these things is like, when you look back on them, there are going to be a hundred things you got right and a thousand things you got wrong. But really there were like two, two or three things that really mattered. Like there were two or three critical decisions. And I think one of them was choosing to build an Android, which was totally the right call at the time. Um, you know, I think missing um, building something around the camera and around GPS was like a huge mistake. Um, whereas we focused on the media challenges, uh, whereas if yeah. we, I think we've been sort of poking around more like camera and GPS stuff, we might've stumbled into something um, even bigger. Um, and then I think the decision ultimately when it wasn't working to sell to Facebook was clearly the right call. Um, because when we look back at all the other companies of that era, it's, it's very clear that Facebook was the breakout. And so that was clearly in retrospect, the right call. And it actually a very pretty pivotal, um, an inflection point in our careers in terms of the opportunities that we got on the other side of that. Gotcha. And so you mentioned um, the process of raising capital and how you think you might have made a few mistakes there. And I'm curious, not so much about the mistakes, but um, including your time at Prep Me, what was the process of raising capital like for you, right? Um, obviously, when talking about Prep Me, you're a first time founder, you're like in college slash relatively new out of college school, you've got one acquisition under your belt. What was the process of fundraising like for you in both those instances and did it change for school given you had like an acquisition under your belt how did that whole thing go down yeah the first one was really tough um you know even though we had a business that was making money and it's because we were much younger much less experienced and that market wasn't as good you know e-learning e um is just a really tough tough uh market and a lot of the professional vcs know that um uh, on the second one is much much easier i mean we raised you know a million and a half or something on, on safe notes, like really, really fast. Um, and um, it was much, much easier in part because Curtis and I were both more experienced and had an exit. Um, but also because everybody could tell that that market was the right market to be in, you know, like mobile was, was the right place to be. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and playing around in Android was like a very reasonable bet. And so it was kind of a, like, you guys are really smart. You've done this before. You're roughly in the right market. You'll figure it out. And those are really easy investments as a VC. Um, uh -huh. and so it was much, much, much easier for us to raise, um, and, you know, I think it speaks a little bit to how, how acquisitions happen and how you get money out of a business. And so, you know, ultimately like, um, that was a much more acquirable business than, than uh, any learning business, um, because there's strategic acquisitions that happen in technology where you have skill sets or expertise or teams or technology and tech companies will pay for those things, even if you don't have revenue. Um, and so, yeah. you know, like the, that, that also changes the, the investor's willingness to invest. Um, and so we, we, we recognize all those things from our first businesses. And so. We, we sort of like when we were thinking about the business to start and the company to start, um, you know, we were, we were much more strategic about, about that. And we took all of those things into consideration um, as we thought about what ideas to pursue. Gotcha. And so now I want to jump forward a little bit and talk about Facebook, right? And so uh, I know you worked there for a while and I'm less interested in like the day-to-day -day what you're working at Facebook, but I'm uh, super curious. I know you started angel investing uh, while you were working at Facebook. And I'm curious, what got you into angel investing? Because I'm assuming that's like probably a pretty significant part of what got you into like the VC space in general, right? So I'm curious, why did you start angel investing? How did you approach that? All that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, well, so what, what kicked it off for me was basically just my friends started companies and I wanted to mm -hmm. help them and be involved. And so I asked if I could put in a little bit of money. Um, and uh, my, my friends were very gracious in saying yes. Um, 
And, uh, and just kind of got the flywheel going. So some of the early companies that I invested in that were just my friend's companies ended up doing reasonably well, which got, kind of got the flywheel going. Um, and my motivation primarily was to, to sort of hang out with my friends, but also I just really like founders. Like that's who I want to hang out with. It's people that are, you know, doing interesting things and building things and playing around with ideas. And they're not so tied up in things like, uh, you know, brand or what company do you work at or how much money do you make? That's like not, that's not the world that they traffic in. The world that they traffic in is ideas and what does the future look like? And they like building stuff. And that's who I wanted to hang out with. Um, and so um, it was mostly that. It was mostly I would just be hanging out with these people anyway. And I wanted to help them. And I had, you know, because I worked uh, on Google search and I worked on uh, Facebook newsfeed, I had this like tangible set of skills where I could actually help these people. And so they wanted me involved. Um, and if I was going to spend time there anyway, it might as well sort of invest a little bit and see if I could um, you know, generate some returns too. And it turns out I'm actually pretty good at it. And so as a result, it sort of, the flywheel started going because I was involved with a couple of things and I was actually very helpful. And because I was able to be helpful to people because I had these sort of tangible skills and having started and sold a company and having worked on Facebook newsfeed and having worked at Google search, um, then, you know, sort of founders know other founders. And so when other friends of friends would start companies, people would reach out and be like, hey, I'm doing this thing. And, you know, you know, so-and-so said you might be able to help me because I'm thinking about using Facebook newsfeed or ads, or I'm thinking about Google search, or it's this kind of a business that's kind of similar to the business you were doing before. And then that kind of got the flywheel going. Um, and then just sort of through word of mouth, it sort of spread and compounded. And since then, I've been very fortunate to be involved with um, a number of companies that are that are now pre-IPO stage. Um, so I think I'm, I'm like a seed investor in probably about, I don't know, maybe 10 to 12 companies that are, you know, have gone from zero to a billion and maybe five or seven companies that are north of like five or 10 billion. Um, so there's a bunch yeah, of that is like incredible. That. Yeah. I've been pretty fortunate. Well, it was a good time to be an investor for the last 10 years, you know? Um, mm -hmm. But um, it's been a good run over the last few years. So very fortunate. It's fun. Like I said, it's just, you know, mostly about hanging out with people that are really smart and playing around with cool ideas and just getting to hang out with them. Gotcha. And so um, I'm, I know you ended up uh, being a part-time part partner at YC for a little bit. Was that just sort of a logical extension of angel investing, the time you had spent in like startups on your own? Um, and so you were like, it's worth helping out like other startups through an mm -hmm. institution like YC, right? I'm curious what got you into YC. Yeah, so I'd, I'd, um, I'd invest in some YC companies. I actually sent some people over to YC, like I, I, where I'd invested prior to YC and then they'd gone through YC after. Um, and so I, I knew some of the partners there, um, like Sam and um, Daniel Gross and, and um, uh, Tim, Tim Brady. And they're like really great folks, um, Jeff. Um, and, and Tim and Jeff had done like this education incubator previously. And so I sort of crossed paths with them before. So I sort of knew some of them in passing, either through investments or the founder community. And, yeah. um, and this was after leaving Facebook. And so I'd already sold some companies. And I was, I was thinking about starting another company with Curtis. And um, but I was sort of just exploring ideas, and um, the um, the YC folks were very generous and, and said like, hey, if you're just exploring ideas and kind of you know bumming around, what, do you want to just bum around our office? Do you want to just like hang out here and help some founders too? Since you've done this twice now, um, mm -hmm. I said sure, that sounds like fun. And so then uh, literally the the old YC office uh, used to be down the street from where I used to live, so it was just literally I could you know walk over in like ten or fifteen minutes, and so. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, that sounds fun. I'll just have like, a place to go and, you know, they have coffee and <laughs> I'll just hang out there instead of like hanging out at home all day. Um, and I got to hang out with a bunch of founders and, and 
spend time with folks like Aaron and Adora and just Mike and Michael and like just learn from them too. So it's a really good opportunity to just like hang out and learn from them um, and make some friends and just kind of help founders um, while I sort of thought through what I want to do. And it was during that period because this was um, like, uh, I guess, starting like right at the end of 2016, early 2017. Um, and uh, I've been spending a lot of my personal time um, in, in what we now call Web3 sort of like distributed systems and mm-hmm. how you build software in a distributed way and like what's Ethereum and these kinds of things. But I was spending a lot of my time in that stuff in, in 2016 and 2017 and just kind of went down the rabbit hole from there, which is why I then sort of decided to go off and, and start electric um, uh, as just sort of, uh, you know, instead of starting another company, we ended up starting a VC firm. Gotcha. And so um, I want to talk about your process of starting electric real quick. You mentioned that you were getting into Web3, I'm assuming it wasn't called Web3 then, right? I had no idea what yeah. blockchain yeah. stuff was then. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. it was either so, blockchain or crypto is kind of what people called it. It wasn't really called Web3 yet. Gotcha. So you were getting into those technologies and I'm curious what got you to fully, like, fully commit to venture, right? You theoretically could have gone on working at YC, right? Um, you mentioned that you thought it would be preferable to start a fund as opposed to another company. And um, so I guess what got you into the fund as opposed to like continuing at YC, working at another firm, um, and like specifically why crypto and blockchain, like what attracted you to it and why did you think it was going to be like successful in the long run? Yeah. So I guess there's two questions. There's like, what drew us to this space? And then mm-hmm. um, how do we sort of decide to do the VC firm or like, how do we know yeah. that, that was the right, right path for us? So on the space, it was, it was actually very... Um, sort of emotional decision, not a rational one. We were spending a lot of our time in it. We'd, we'd, you know, seen, we'd read some white papers and we thought it was a cool, different way to build software. We, we sort of, um, Curtis um, has a distributed systems background. I played around with a bunch of peer to peer stuff when I was in college and networks. Um, and so we were just sort of intellectually curious with it and playing around with it. And w- what we felt, what we started to realize, especially in like early 2017, was we would go into these chat rooms and there are these really interesting conversations happening. Uh, and it was a bunch of sort of people that you didn't know and they're anons. And um, the, the people in those, um, in this, in this group, you were like, oh, I don't know if this person's like 17 or 47. I just know that they're really smart. Um, and we looked in the ecosystem, you're like, wow, there's like probably some bad actors here, you know, in terms of like drug dealers um, or people trying to you know, evade taxes uh, and there's some adult, you know, film stars here, but there's also college professors and college kids and, you know, touring award winners. And, um, you know, there's government officials, there's like the CIA and there's wall street people and there's all these entrepreneurs. And, and when you look at that community of people, like that community of people doesn't get together that often. Like, you know, if you threw mm-hmm. the example I always use is like, if you threw a dinner party and like drug dealers and adult film stars and the FBI and the CIA and some government officials and wall street bankers and a bunch of entrepreneurs and a bunch of college kids and your college professor showed up you'd be like wow this is a weird party <laughs> like how did this party happen um but that happens every 15 or 20 years and when it happens it's because all of these very different people are seeing value um, from their perspective but they're all seeing some value um and that's a really really strong signal that there's something fundamentally happening here um and i think the sort of association with um, the speculative activity or the scammers who invariably come out when there's speculative activity um, or some of these um, sort of, you know, um, uh, types of behaviors that, that, you know, people may have moral objections with 
like people recoil from that and they sort of look at that and they're like, oh, I shouldn't get involved with those things for all those reasons, the speculation mm-hmm. or the, the scammers or whatever. And I actually think that that's, that's like the opposite of what you should do. That's kind of the like signal that there's real value here somewhere. And then the job ends up being like, how do you cut through the noise to figure out where the real value is? Um, and so we said, okay, this is the space that we want to be in. Like something is really happening here. Um, and it's very, very fun. We're just having a good time with it. Um, so we're just spending all of our time um, doing this stuff. And um, we were sort of um, personally angel investing. And so we were investors in, in a number of companies and protocols of that era. So like Dapper Labs and DYDX and Bitwise and Anchorage and a bunch of good stuff that's gone on to do well. And um, we, uh, we were spending all of our time in it. And then uh, a bunch of people started reaching out to us just asking for advice. They were just like, hey, you guys are spending a lot of time in this crypto, you know, blockchain stuff. Could, could you help, come help us, like, think about it? Could you help our partnership think about it? These are, like, VCs or investors. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you, know, um, you know, how do you think about Ethereum? Like, what's an ICO? Like, what is Bitcoin? So we were just getting a bunch of inbounds from people that we'd worked with over the years. These are, like, VC firms or angel investors or, you know, people that we yeah. worked with. And so we just done a bunch of kind of teaching and conversation kind of sessions. And then... Um, Kind of by the end of 2017, a bunch of these people basically realized they're not really set up to to participate in these ecosystems. Like they don't they don't have the infrastructure for it. Like they didn't want to register with the SEC if they're VC firms because there's a bunch of technicalities around how uh, a VC firm operates with respect to the SEC. And um, you know they they had you know, most investors. If you go back to like 2016, 2017, had a pretty good thing going like fintech and marketplaces and SaaS. You know, like five years ago was still a pretty great thing. And so they were like, you know what, I'm just going to stay focused on my core business. Um, and then of course, crypto crashed in 2018. Um, but a few people came to us in, in um, early 2018 and said, Hey, can we just give you guys money? Can we, can you just do what you're doing with your personal angel investing? But, but could you take some of our money and do it too? Um, and that to us kind of sniffed like product market fit, right? Like this is sort of the lesson of having been an entrepreneur is like, if people are showing up and basically saying, Hey, why don't you, why don't you take my money and, and, you know, uh, just do whatever you do. I don't really understand what you do, but please take my money. Cause I think you might be onto something. <laughs> That's like a good sign that you, that you might have some beginnings of product market fit, right? Like people are just offering you money yeah. without, without really understanding what you do. Um, and so we said, you know what, like maybe we should take this money. You know, this is the space we want to be in. We thought we'd start something and maybe the thing that we start is this. And, and really it's just a business model question, right? It's just, just so happens that when you take other people's money and then you deploy the money, um, you have a very particular business model, but actually the thing that you're creating is still a startup. Um, and, yeah. and if we sort of like think through what that is, maybe actually the way you need to build a VC firm in this space is very different. And it's not actually going to look like a traditional VC firm. It's actually going to look more like a tech startup. Um, and it's because the stuff that you have to do here is much more technical. Like the way that you uh, operate um, has to, you know, you have to look at nodes and smart contracts and do you know, code audits and evaluate what's happening technically. You have to like figure out, um, uh, you know, like when you're making an investment, it may not be that you actually sign some document and do a safe. It's like you might go to a foundation and buy tokens and have to stake them, right? It's just like the mechanics of how you invest are just so different. Um, that, so have you actually like made investments through such mechanisms? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we're we're fully crypto native. We have, most of the team is um, is engineers, so there's about oh, um, interesting. Yeah, so about uh, everybody on the investment team has some um, backgrounds in computer science, undergrad and grad school. Um, and then we have a team of um, an additional 
five engineers and two designers and a data scientist. So like, if you look at that, like I described to you what we do, right? Or if I, if oh, I like showed you our, our about page or our team page, and I was like, oh yeah, we have two designers and a, and a data scientist and like 10 engineers. Um, and then like a finance person and an ops person, you're like, oh, you're a tech startup, but actually what we are is a VC firm. It just doesn't look like a VC firm, right? Just because all the stuff that we have to do day to day is totally different. Um, and so, yeah, we, that's how we're, that's how we're building electric. It's like, we're, we're building it the way you would build a software company, not the way that you would build a VC firm, because I think the way you need to operate here day to day is just so fundamentally different. Interesting. Oh, that's super cool. I, I didn't, for some reason, it just never crossed my mind that even with like all these anonymous companies, um, like you would have to send money through like some sort of smart contract or something that I never considered that. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting. Um, so I'm assuming y'all are probably like to some degree, the black sheep in crypto or not in crypto, sorry, in venture sort of, how has that worked out for you? Right. I'm assuming there's not many other companies that or any, many other venture firms that are building their firm like a company like you, uh, like you are at electric, they're not doing these things where they're like these unconventional quote unquote, unconventional methods of sending money. How, how does that, how has that worked out for you in the space? It's been great. I mean, I think it's, it's, you know, relative to the, to the traditional VCs, um, you know, it's been really, really great because we're just doing a bunch of stuff that they can't do. Um, and so, um, you know, it's, it's sort of, uh, it's created a, a space for us, which is just so different from, from what the trad, trad VCs do. Um, and yeah, there, there are a relatively small number of people that um, are doing what we're doing. You know, it's like us, Andreessen, Paradigm, you know, it's like a very small group. Um, and so, yeah, we, we are in, in the venture community. I think we have been sort of the outsiders. It's starting mm -hmm. to change. You know, I think as of last year, um, like 2021, people in venture and I think investing in general sort of got their heads around the thing that, um, uh, that maybe crypto is real and that actually they should be paying yeah. attention. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, the way I describe it is I think 2021 is the year that um, crypto went from being contrarian to being consensus. And so now a lot of the VC firms are getting up to speed and they're trying to figure out how to actually participate here. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens. Like if we go into another crypto bear market here, you know, maybe all of those firms lose their sense of urgency to, to focus on this stuff um, and, uh, and kind of, step back again, which would be great for us, actually. Like that means, you know, everybody will sort of step away and it'll, um, it'll be really good for us. So, um, but yeah, I think, I think at this point we, we were the outsiders and it was not clear whether we were correct and you know, we were contrarian, but it wasn't clear whether we were correct. And yeah. I think the the conclusion everybody's come to over the last three years is we were contrarian, but correct. And now everybody's trying to figure out how to get to this side of the line. And so at some point, you know, the, the things that we're doing have to then move beyond the things that are obviously consensus. Because now if everybody yeah. can buy, buy like Bitcoin and Ethereum in their funds, then that's not really the consensus trade anymore. Um, and so you need to figure out like what is, so that is the consensus trade. It's not the contrarian bet anymore. And so a lot of what we start thinking about is like, what are the things that we can do that the, that the traditional VCs just can't do? Gotcha. Um, and so speaking of, you mentioned how 2021 was um, like more people are getting into it in terms of venture. Obviously, 2021, New Year, like going into the New Year, crypto explodes, right? Bitcoin crosses, I think what the landmark that people were super excited about was 25K, right, on Christmas of 2020. Um, and it just kept skyrocketing for the most part. And uh, I'm curious how, obviously, you said more venture companies got into play. Were you seeing, uh, or sorry, venture funds, were you seeing more sort of crypto-based companies 
uh, cropping up, more ideas being built? How did that affect your day-to-day -day investing? Um, it hasn't really affected it that much. I mean, you know, we're kind of are still doing what we were doing. We're still looking for really interesting, you know, crypto networks. We're looking at really excellent technologies. We're looking for really excellent teams that know how to build community. We're looking for communities that are doing something and have, you know, um, some strong values orientation that sort of, you know, powering what they're, what they're doing. So, you know, a lot of what we do hasn't really changed. Um, it, uh, you know, in certain parts of the market has made it more challenging because there's more competition. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think um, there are definitely more challenges. It's harder than it was um, two years ago in some sense. Um, but that's sort of what you would expect. You know, it's not a surprise. Like that's exactly what you'd expect with, with any new and emerging market is like, you know, once people figure out there, there are really excellent returns to be had, then, um, you know, does it really make sense to, you know, nobody's going to ignore you, right? If you can make the kinds of returns that VC firms and crypto have been making, then, you know, you can't be ignored for that long. And so, um, yeah, so no, no real surprises, no real change to our operating plans. We're still doing what we're doing. We just sort of have to run faster and stay ahead of um, everybody else. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so now uh, for like, the next few questions, I want to sort of take a bit of a step back. Um, and uh, I'm curious, just larger level learning lesson, important stuff type of things, right? And so uh, first thing up is what is like that one thing you wish you had known, right? When you were starting out any of your companies, uh, electric, any of these, is there like one sort of important thing you would have told yourself if you could go back like 10, 15, whatever many years? Uh, many, many things. Probably the biggest one is, is you have to pick the right market and everything else will take care of itself. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, I think that's probably the biggest mistake I've made is just picking the wrong markets. Um, uh, and everything else is sort of, you know, a rounding error. And I think kind of in the same vein, I think there are a relatively small number of decisions that really matter every year. Um, and so if you think something that you're deciding is one of those then you should really really pay attention and if it's not going to be one of those then you should like decide quickly and move on um so in some sense like most people spend too little time thinking about the things that really matter and too much time on things that don't really matter um uh -huh. and if you can kind of get that balance right you'll actually make better decisions and be able to make more decisions because actually most decisions don't really matter that much um and so I think if you, if you kind of get those two things right, like you can actually get pretty far, like pick the right markets and be like thoughtful about the things that really, really matter. And don't worry about the things that don't matter um, in, the, in terms of like the quality of decision-making. Um, and you just sort of, you know, if you're patient, that will compound over time. Um, and at least that's how we've approached electric. And I think it's really worked well for us. Gotcha. So next thing up is at this stage, do you, would you call yourself successful? Um... No, I mean, the reason I hesitate is like, I think by like external measures, we've been extremely successful, um, but that's uh -huh. sort of like not really the thing that I think about. Um, I sort of have the internal barometer of, are we operating as a team at our fullest potential? You know, are we operating at the level of what we're capable of? And the answer to that right now is no. So despite us being... Um, you know, as, as uh, successful as we have been by sort of a bunch of external metrics, um, you know, I, I don't think we've yet actually executed to, to our fullest potential as a team. And so that's what I'm excited about for this year is I think we're starting to finally get into a good cadence and starting to think about um, uh, what that means and how to be able to do that. 
Um, and, and I think once we're able to do that, I will think about us as actually being successful because we'll have built a thing that actually operates well and runs well and can run independently ultimately of me. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not, we're not there yet. And it's funny because that might, that might not a hundred percent correlate with financial returns or financial outcomes or anything like that, though I think it will. Um, yeah. And so, you know, our, our returns have been really, really excellent. And we've been fortunate to be involved with a number of great companies and protocols over the years. Um, but relative to what I think we're capable of, I don't think we're anywhere close. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, that, yeah, I, I agree with the thing about like externally, I agree. Like that is the first thing that I feel like comes to mind when looking at venture firms that I have seen. The general trend when I talk to y'all is like, there's always more, which is super cool. super fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so uh, I want to end it with a question I ask all my guests, which I hope reveals a little bit more of like personality-wise things, which is just, what is your favorite number and what's the significance behind it? <laughs> um, it's a good question. Um, I don't know if I have a favorite number per se. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe it's just the number one, right? Sort of in keeping with the theme that we had, it's like, you know, being, being an outsider is pretty lonely. Um, and so, you know, you get, you get used to it and, uh, it's sort of one is, one is embodiment of that. And then there's also sort of like the aspirational, you know, if you're actually, uh, really, really good at what you do and, and you are actually realizing your full potential, then there's, there's a good shot that you might actually be the best at what you do. Um, and so, you know, sort of, sort of symbolic of that as well, I guess. Gotcha. I have to say like the, being the best that you do makes so much sense to me. And I also think it like throws it back to like when you were saying, uh, when you were mentioning like you're a competitive person, I like fully relate to that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that brings us to a really nice close. So yeah, thanks so much again for taking the time to talk to me today. Absolutely. My pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. Yep.